Good morning again. So sometimes when I start a sermon, I have a question I like to ask you. The question I'd like to ask you today is, who is the goat? Who is the goat? Now, when I say goat, you may say, what are you talking about, Pastor John? Well, that's an acronym that many people use today that means greatest of all time. Who is the greatest of all time? And that's a debate that we love to have with each other about whatever topic we're looking at. Who is the best? Who is the greatest of all time? I, I hear this a lot, particularly in conversations around sports. Uh, it shows up a lot in basketball conversations. Now, I was a kid in the 90s, and so that answer was easy. It was Michael Jordan because he won those six championships then. But but then if you think about it more, maybe that argument doesn't hold up. Maybe you think, well, Bill Russell, he won 11 championships. Maybe that's more impressive there. Or maybe you're a big fan now, and you think about the big players now, and you're like, well, they're, they're bigger, they're stronger, they're more athletic. They could have beaten those guys. Maybe guys like LeBron or something are actually better, and we can have this debate back and forth. We can do it in football. Now, with football, love them or hate them, Tom Brady does have seven Super Bowls, so may maybe that's the answer there, but maybe you're like, no, look back. It was more impressive what Joe Montana or one of those other quarterbacks did. Or maybe you talk about a different position, like Jerry Rice or Jim Brown. But it's not just sports. If you're not a sports person, you can have this debate about musicians. Who's the better performer, Elvis or Michael Jackson? You can have long discussions there. What band is better? Is it the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Queen, someone else? Maybe you prefer more classical music or older music, and you want to debate what composer is better. Is it is the greatest of all time? Is it Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, Brahms, lots of B names, whoever you want to go with there. Even in my circles, uh, my professional circles, as a pastor, as a preacher, we can have discussions about who's the greatest preacher of all time. Now, obviously, that's Charles Spurgeon, but who's number two? We can have a good discussion about that one. And you could do this with any category. Who is the greatest of all time? And these are just fun discussions. There's no harm in having a conversation like this. However, this tendency we have to talk about that can very easily turn sinister. When it stops being about these people will never meet and these great works of art or sports and instead turns to a conversation we have about ourselves and about others. Now we might say, well, I never think of myself as the greatest Pastor John. Yes, but we do like to compare ourselves to others. I came across this quote from Pastor J.C. Ryle. He said, we are all born Pharisees. We all naturally think far better of ourselves than we ought. We all naturally fancy that we deserve something better than we have. We think we're better than others. And we may not say I'm not the greatest, but I'm greater than that person. But on the other hand, We've been going through the Gospel of Mark here when we come together. And what we've been learning about is who Jesus is and what he cares about. And the passage we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37, Jesus is going to turn to this subject of greatness. Now, this conversation, or one like it, is also in Matthew 17 and 18 and Luke 9, but here in Mark, we're going to see that Jesus' opinion about greatness may surprise us. Because instead of looking at ourselves, Jesus says that greatness is found in being a servant, in putting others first, in serving those 
that the rest of the world overlooks. And we'll also see that Jesus himself is the perfect example of true greatness because he came to serve and save us. So if you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9, big 9, we're going to start with little verse 30. If you want to use that blue Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, it should be on page 1005, 1005. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that one home with you. But once you are there, uh, I'd ask you, if you're able, to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to stand together and I'm going to read our passage, again, Mark chapter 9, big 9, little, verse 30, and I'm going to read through verse 37. So starting in verse 30, talking about Jesus and the disciples, it says, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he, Jesus, he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the same and were afraid to ask him. Verse 33 says, they came to Capernaum. And when he, Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Verse 35, and Jesus sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, not only me, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Lord, in our minds and in the world around us, we have a lot of confusion about what greatness actually is. So I pray today, Lord, you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your truth, that greatness is found in serving, that greatness is found in putting others first, in serving those who are overlooked. God, lead us to see that the greatest example of that, the perfect example of true greatness is your son, Jesus Christ. To borrow words from John the Baptist in John 3.30, God, may he increase and may I decrease. May all of us decrease so that we can see Jesus clearly in this text and see clearly the difference that he can make in our lives as he shows us true greatness. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. The way Mark approaches this subject of greatness is first by talking about some confusion, some misunderstandings about what greatness is. And what is the confused understanding that most of the world has about greatness? Well, that's that greatness is about yourself, that it's about self-focus. A confused view of greatness is one that is based on self-focus. In our text, we see Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling through the region near the Sea of Galilee. 
Verse 30 tells us they went on from where they were, they passed through Galilee. And it says Jesus did not want anyone to know. He seeks privacy to teach his disciples. He's making his way toward his final work, his death, burial, and resurrection in the city of Jerusalem. But before he gets there, he wants some time away from the pressure and the misunderstanding of the crowd so that he can strengthen the faith of the disciples. We talked about that last week. Pastor Tom shared about how Jesus desires to strengthen our faith. That's what he's trying to do for them now. And to do that, he shares with them what is going to happen to him once they get to Jerusalem. It's the second time he's been very clear about this. He says, the Son of Man will be delivered. He will be handed over to the authorities and killed. But that betrayal, that murder is actually a part of God's plan because on the third day, he says that he will rise again. Jesus is trying to get them to understand that God has a purpose, a plan. He is going to send Jesus on purpose to the cross. And the reason he does that is so that Jesus can die and rise so that we can be saved. Now, the disciples don't get this. Verse 32 tells us they did not understand that saying. They were still expecting a political savior, a conqueror who would defeat all their enemies. Their preconceived notion of greatness is somebody who's going to come and is going to defeat everyone, and we are going to rule forever. And when Jesus talks about this Son of Man, this rescuer being one who dies, who's killed, that doesn't make any sense. So they don't understand what he's saying. They're unable to see God's truth. They're confused, and they're afraid to ask more questions. They don't even want to know what this being killed means. They're like, that doesn't make sense. Must be something weird he's talking about. They're not focused on it. But their confusion leads into another section of Mark where Jesus is going to teach them about how God and his kingdom is different from their perspective. He's going to talk about what it looks like to follow him in service and childlike trust. And so in verse 33, they arrive at Jesus's home base of Capernaum. They settle into the house that they're staying in, and now that they're in private, and he won't embarrass them publicly, Jesus asks his disciples, what were you discussing? What were you disputing or arguing about on the way? Now, Jesus is God. It's not that he doesn't know what they were talking about, but he wants them to think about their actions. If you're a uh, a parent and you've had young children or else you have younger siblings or you, you've looked after a young child and you've ever come into a room and the child has just made a mess of everything. What do you say? You say, what did you do? You know what they did, obviously. They made a, a mess, but you're trying to get them to think about their actions, to take ownership of their actions. That's what Jesus is doing now. He's trying to get them to understand the significance of their debate. And the disciples, they they get the point. They're ashamed to answer. They keep silent because Mark tells us on the way they had argued amongst themselves of who was or who would be the greatest among them. And can we appreciate just how insensitive this is? Jesus just told them, hey guys, I'm about to die. They're like, great Jesus, which one of us is the greatest right now? That's incredibly insensitive toward their master. They're only thinking about what Jesus can do for them, how he can bring them power, honor, wealth, status. They're dreaming about who's going to be recognized more when his kingdom finally comes. 
I'm sure it was a lively debate. Like, is it going to be Peter, James, or John there in that inner circle? Which one is closer to Jesus? And maybe Matthew said, you know, I gave up being a tax collector for this, so I'm doing a lot of things different now. I think I'm going to end up being the greatest. I'm sure the others had opinions about that as well. But in all of them, they're missing God's priority. The Apostle Paul would put it this way in the book of Philippians. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's God's priority. But the disciples don't get it. They don't understand that Jesus is going to suffer. They don't understand the impact his mission should have on their lives. And so Jesus is going to have to spell it out for them very clearly. Now we could make fun of them, but like the disciples, we can do the same. It's very easy for us to get wrapped up in ourselves, our own ambitions, our own goals and desires. One commentator I read, Danny Aiken, gave some examples. He talked about how we get upset when we are not praised or thanked for the things that we do. We seek credit even when we didn't necessarily do the work because we value the popularity and recognition. We like to sit at the best or most comfortable seat at the table or be given praise and titles. Perhaps it shows itself in how we're focused on ourselves, and we think we have something to say and contribute to every topic instead of taking time to listen and learn. Now, now when I say these things, I'm not trying to single anybody out or anything. This is something we all do. It's our human nature, but that doesn't make it right. That's the message the world around us gives us. It gives us the message your life should be about you and what you want. And if you chase your dreams and achieve them, that is true greatness. And we can be honest, that's a really appealing message. We get it a lot. We get it in media, the news or anything highlights people who succeed in that way. Our entertainment, our movies, TV shows talk about those who have a goal, chase it and get it. Advertisements tell us this, be your best you, get what you want. Our friends may say, yeah, you need to do that thing that you want. But Jesus is going to show us another way. He's going to show us God's way. And what does God think is great? God thinks being a servant is great. Being a servant. How do we do that? What does that look like? Well, we'll talk about two sides of this Jesus brings up. One is being a servant is putting others first. God defines greatness as being a servant by putting others first first. This is what Jesus addresses first in verse 35. We're told that he sat down because teachers in Jesus's day, unlike me, I'm standing up here in front of you, in his day, a teacher would sit down. It meant what he had to say had weight and importance. So he sits down, he calls the 12, and this is what he says to them in verse 35. If anyone would, or if anyone desires to be first, he must be last of all. He must be last place and a servant of all, a servant of everyone. Simply put, if you want to be first, you have to be last. The way up is the way down. This was incredibly countercultural, against what everyone was saying, not only today, but also back in Jesus' day. 
This was a culture that was an honor-shame culture. Everything was about who is supposed to be honored, how are you supposed to honor them, what are you supposed to do for them, how can you see if your status is higher than someone else. The whole culture was about that, but you know, then or today, God's never really been concerned about what the rest of culture thinks. Jesus says, just as God's Messiah is going to serve and suffer, well, his people are to be servants, even if they suffer for it. And even that word servant is a radical word. It's radical in our context. It's not a word we use very often. We don't like calling people servants. We use words employee, other things that, that we use. We don't like that word. It seems demeaning. Yeah, that's the point. It's supposed to be a demeaning word. In Jesus's day, the servants, they were the ones who would wash your feet when you came inside. You might say, okay, but remember, everyone wore sandals then. There wasn't a sewer system. You wore sandals, you were walking around in everything, and when you came home, the servant was the one who washed your feet. And then the servant was the one who had to wash your soiled clothes, undergarments. That was what servants did. Jesus is saying that is what it looks like to be great. And that's the exact opposite of what the disciples were talking about. They were talking about which one of them would be the greatest. Jesus would come back to this point several times. We'll see in our next chapter, chapter 10, that Jesus calls them to him. He says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. This is a crucial point for us to grasp if we are going to follow Jesus. We've already seen it there twice in Mark. He talks about it in Matthew as well. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant because whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, this is Jesus's perspective on leadership. His perspective is not about promoting your ego or your agenda. It's about putting others first. It's an extremely important lesson if any of us are to be in or honor God in a position of leadership. We must be about serving others. If you are a leader and you're not about serving others, then you're not doing it in a God-honoring way. Why does God care so much about this? Well, because God's kingdom is not based on our idea of greatness. God's kingdom is based on humility, on faith, on love. A type of humility and love that serves not because we have to, but because we want to. And Jesus is, of course, the primary example of this type of service. Paul, in this long passage of Philippians, tells us how Jesus served us. Look what he says. He tells them to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What did Jesus do? Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. How did he do that? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, what did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Jesus, the Son of God, made the decision to humble himself and serve because he knew that everlasting glory would only come after that. The next verse, Paul says this, Therefore, because he served in that way, God has highly exalted him, bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, whether in heaven and on earth, under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the order, though, in this passage? His humbling, his service comes first, then that glory comes after. That's the challenge he gives us. If you truly want to be great, you have to start with serving others, putting others first. But what does that look like specifically? Well, he he helps us to understand that. Being a servant looks like serving those who are overlooked, serving those who are overlooked. The way Jesus does this, we see in our text. He takes a little child and puts this child in the midst or among the disciples. Uh, We don't know who this child is. It's possible. Maybe this is one of Peter's children. Maybe Peter had, had children here because Jesus often stayed in Peter's house when he was in Capernaum. Maybe. We don't know it. It doesn't say that. Regardless, there's a child. And Jesus says, Whoever receives or welcomes one of these children in his name receives or welcomes him. And if you're receiving and welcoming Jesus, then you're also receiving and welcoming God, the one who sent Jesus. His point is that if you want to be great, if you want to be accepted by God, we need to know true greatness does not overlook a child. Again, this is really surprising in Jesus' day. They thought about children a little differently than we do now. In his day, a child was viewed as being weak or inferior. This is, again, 2,000 years ago, so there was a very high infant mortality rate. It was not every child lived to adulthood, and so you had value when you were able to be put to work, when it was like, okay, you're going to live now, so now we will value you. But Jesus said, no, even the smallest, weakest child should be welcomed like an honored guest. Welcoming a child is treating one who is weak or one who is last in the eyes of the world with respect. And Jesus modeled this repeatedly throughout his ministry. Again, we'll see in chapter 10 that people start bringing their children to him that he might touch them. The disciples rebuke them, but Jesus instead rebukes the disciples. And what does he do? He takes them, the children, in his arms and blesses them, laying his hands on them. The lesson for us is that if we are to follow Jesus, we should not overlook the marginalized, the forgotten, but receive and care for them in Jesus' name. We should care for those who are low, the lowest of the low, those who no one else recognizes. Particularly, we serve those who are fellow believers, fellow children of God, and serving God's people in this way, Jesus says, is how we receive Jesus, receive his heavenly Father. Caring for God's people like this, caring for the lowly, leads to the reward of fellowship with Jesus and fellowship with God the Father. Now, don't twist that point. I'm not preaching a salvation by works, that you need to do this in order to be accepted by God. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if our life has been changed by God, this is the love and care we show 
to others. Jesus speaks about it in Matthew 25. He speaks about the king will say to those who serve, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Danny Aiken paraphrases Jesus' words in our passage. He's saying, what is Jesus saying in verse 37? He's saying, treat well those in the world who, who have no standing in the world. Those like children or lepers, maybe AIDS victims, mentally impaired, physically disabled, the aged, treat well those with no standing, and you will receive an audience with my Father. The list could go on and on. We could we talk about many different types of people who've been overlooked. But the point is, when we humbly and sacrificially serve others from the heart, then our desires mingle with God's. And when we serve the overlooked, like the song we sang, we look a little more like Jesus, a little less like me. But how does this work? Well, what, what does this look like practically, Pastor John? Well, there's lots of ways we could think about it. I can't apply to every situation, but, but let me give some examples. Maybe it's something simple. Maybe it's something like just letting someone else go first if you're in a line or something like that. Maybe it's helping or meeting a need. I'm always encouraged, uh, yesterday there was several people from the church helping someone else move, and so I'm always grateful for those who get together when someone's moving to help. We don't get paid for it, we do it because we like to serve and help others. That's perhaps a simple way to do it. Sometimes there's a harder way to do it, though. Perhaps a harder way to serve is respecting those you disagree with, appreciating their opinions and perspectives, even if you think it's wrong. That's a little harder. Also harder is actively seeking how you can help and serve someone who's been overlooked, looking for a need or looking for where something's been overlooked, maybe in your character or just someone's situation and trying to serve. I'm repeating this story because I asked Dan if I could do it. Dan told me yesterday, Elder Dan, that uh, he used to, when he was moving heavy things, uh, that somehow it would just so happen that he would always be walking straight and whoever was carrying the other end would be walking backwards. And finally, a couple loved ones in his life had to bring up, hey, hey Dan, wh- why is it you're always walking straight and I'm walking backwards? And now he's very intentional when he's carrying something to make sure that doesn't happen. He realized, oh, I wasn't really serving others well in that way. And now he does. As Pastor Jason Meyer says, true greatness elevates others. True greatness sees how to empower someone, not overpower them. So those are some ways to serve. Perhaps an even, even harder way would be forgiving rather than seeking revenge on someone who has wronged us. Now we put all this together, forgiving others, finding greatness in serving, putting others first, serving the overlooked. According to our world, Pastor, that's a very upside-down way of thinking. Just think about how we talk about what's great. When we talk about things like politics, we celebrate those who dominate their opponents rather than those who best serve others. As Pastor Ryle says, the world's idea of greatness is to rule, but Christian greatness consists in serving. And so friends, we have to decide, are we going to follow greatness the way the rest of the world does? Or are we going to follow Christ, even if no one else does? Ryle goes on to say, The men who are willing to be last of all and servants of all for Christ's sake are always few. Yet these are the men who do good, 
who break down prejudice. They're, they convince infidels, non-believers, that Christianity is reality. These are the men who shake the world. Brothers and sisters, li- listen carefully. I've said things like this before, but let me be clear here. The most powerful politician in the world does less for God's kingdom than one feeble believer who genuinely serves one other person. The richest billionaire in the world has less of an impact than one poor believer who models Christ's love to a person in need. That's not the way the rest of the world works. I know that, but that is how God works. Now, we might push back. We say, well, if I'm powerful, if I'm rich, I can do so much for God. Okay, Jesus says, if you will be first, you must be last. The world won't like that. The world will mock that, that humble, submissive service. They'll say, well, you should do something bigger. You should promote your brand. You should win more power. But God sees and works through the humble service of his people. I was reading a devotional recently from Alistair Begg. He put it this way, we tend to have an unhealthy preoccupation with being regarded as significant, being regarded as intellectually sensible, socially acceptable. But I love this. He says, when has that ever been an effective strategy for the work of the gospel? The choice is clear. Either we're going to do what Jesus says, or we're going to do what the culture says. So let me ask you, what will your life be about? Will it be about you, or will it be about Jesus? Will it be about Jesus such that you serve others in his name? And I can guarantee you something. I can guarantee you that today you will have this choice presented to you. As long as you interact with one other human being today, you will be presented with an opportunity where you can either do something good for yourself or good for that other person. Maybe it's something simple like who gets food first at lunch or something like that. But maybe it's something much more difficult, like forgiving someone who deeply offended you or hurt you. Now, we we could push back on that. We could say, well, Pastor, if everybody lives that way, we'll just be taken advantage of. And let me be clear, we, we shouldn't tolerate abuse, and God brings his justice. We should trust that God will bring his justice and right all wrongs, heal all wounds. But friends, we shouldn't let these objections our brain jumps to keep us from following what Jesus says. The way of service will always be hard, but it is worth it because it leads to a greater heavenly reward. So I ask you, do you want to be great? Jesus asked, the way you can know is if you live for yourself or for others. Now I could stop there and we could call it a day, but It's important for us to remind ourselves what this series we're doing, what this book, not only the book of Mark, but the whole Bible is actually about, or who it's about. What's the big question there? Who is Jesus? And it's not really at the end of the day about us and what we do, but about Jesus and what he has done for us. And so with that in mind, the only faithful conclusion that a message like this could come to is that true greatness is found in Jesus Christ. In all the categories that actually matter in life, Jesus is the goat, the greatest of all time. 
And we can see this, a taste of this, if we just look back at one of the verses we already read, back at verse 31. Here Jesus is trying to paint a picture for his disciples of true greatness. Look what he says. He's teaching them, saying, what is this great son of man rescuer going to do? He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. When Jesus was on earth, he didn't focus on himself and his own interest. He put others first by dying for sin. And then he rose to new life so that those who have been overlooked and oppressed by sin can find a new relationship with God. Freedom, eternal life through him. We'll read this very clearly later in Mark 10. It says that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is God. If anyone deserved to be served on earth, it was him, but that's not why he why he came. He came to serve us. And the way he did that was giving his life, dying to ransom by us out of slavery to sin, to pay the penalty of our sin. This is the main theme, many say, of Mark. It's definitely the main theme of Jesus's life. He died for us, and his death makes it possible for us to be received and welcomed by God. Pastor Meyer uses this language Jesus does of receiving and welcoming, and he says Jesus is more ready to receive you than you are ready to be received. Indeed, the Father's arms are open to you, the family of God is open to you, only because the Son stretched out his arms for you on the cross. Jesus purchased our seat at God's table, not because of what we did, but because of what he did. Maybe you're here and you haven't come to him. You don't know him. And you've no hope of actually being great because that greatness is only found in him. And the way you come to him is by seeing what he has done. He died for the wrong, the rebellion, the things that you did that pushed yourself away from God. He died for that so that you could be restored. He's provided a way. If you turn from sin, believe, trust in him then you can have eternal life. Believe and trust in this one, this suffering servant who is truly great. I'd encourage you, if you're confused about that, to talk to me afterwards, because I'd love to tell you more about the one who suffered for us. Yet, this greatness we see in Jesus, it not only saves us, if we know him, it also shows us how we can serve others the way God desires if we want to put others first, if we want to serve the overlooked, we can only do that through Jesus Christ. Again, Pastor Begg says, only the grace of God can get your focus off of yourself, can set you free from yourself. Only gazing at Jesus, the one who left the glories of heaven to die for you on a cross, can change your heart. Only looking at Jesus can change you so that you seek to serve, not to be served, that you care less about your prestige than you do about the good of others. I know I said some perhaps challenging things about service. I don't want you to leave here thinking, oh golly, well I have a lot to do this week. That's the wrong message to leave with because you cannot change on your own. You cannot will yourself to be a better servant of others. Jesus must change your entire outlook 
first. But if our focus is on Jesus, if it's on knowing him, if it's on modeling him, loving him, well, then the rest of our world falls into order. My favorite professor in seminary was uh, a pastor named Tony Merida, and he wrote that where the world strives to go from the pit to the palace, the Son of God did the reverse. We want to go from the bottom to the top. Jesus was as high as he could be, and instead he came down to the bottom. And if we embrace that message, what happens then? That gospel, that good news, frees us from our addiction to ourselves. It frees us so we don't make our life about climbing the ladder. We make our life about serving others the way Jesus served us. It's our sin that keeps us self-focused. It's only focusing on Christ that can set us free. This is a reminder we need all the time. It's a reminder I need all the time. If you've been around this church for a while, you may have noticed that a verse I quote a lot, particularly during my opening prayer, is John 3.30. This is John the Baptist speaking about Jesus, and he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. The picture of someone with a shirt, Jesus is greater than me. John the Baptist said, he, Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. I don't quote that verse all the time because, just because I like it. I quote it because I need it. I need that reminder. I need that reminder. I, I, I come up here and stand, and there's a room of people looking at me. I need to remind myself of this every time I'm here. I feel each of us needs to remind ourselves of this every day. It's a motivation, a challenge to make our lives more about Jesus and less about us. Brothers and sisters, I think Christ is very clear in this passage. He calls us to be a servant. He calls us to decrease so that he may increase forever and ever. So let me ask you, if you don't know Jesus, then will you come to know him? If you do, will your life be focused on him? Will you focus on him right now as we're about to worship through song? Will you focus on his greatness as we remember what he has done when we celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a few moments? Will your life be a life of service, a life of a servant, because our Lord Jesus Christ is worthy?